Hi, this is David Douglas, Managing Director of EBO at the Digital Agency. EBO are the proud sponsors this year of Radio Molly and Molly's Digital Programme. listening to Writer Presents. This edition of Writer Presents was written and presented by Jan Carson. Across three episodes of this Writer Presents program, Jan Carson looks at writing about and through the experience of dementia and speaks to three people with different perspectives on the subject. In this episode, Carson speaks with the poet Sarah Hesketh. We've looked at the importance of robust research and how our own lived experience can help us to approach the topic of writing dementia in an ethical fashion. But I'd like to bring another voice into the conversation. Increasingly, people living with dementia are writing their own narratives, collaborating with other writers to help get their stories down honestly and accurately. I thought I'd conclude by talking to a poet who's been involved in a project where she wrote very closely with people living with dementia responding to their lived experience and even their words. I'll let her tell you all how she came to be involved in this project. I am really delighted to be here this afternoon um, having an online chat, sadly, rather than face-to-face with my good friend, Sarah, um, a person that I have really admired for a long time in terms of her work, but also her absolutely beautiful writing. So, Sarah, could you introduce us to yourself and tell us why you're here today? So, my name is Sarah Hesketh and I am a writer and editor and I work primarily in poetry. So I work as a managing editor for a magazine and I also write. And in my writing, I guess I've come round to saying, or perhaps borrowing the term from visual art of having a socially engaged practice. Um, But I think that all that, what that really means to me is that I love working with and writing about people, um, both historic and contemporary real life people. Um, and I know that you've done quite a bit of work in the past around dementia and how we write dementia, but I'm wondering what first drew you to that world of dementia? Because it's it's quite a specific area of interest. Yeah, so my entry into it was quite accidental and all down to one person called David Clegg. Um, so David was uh, is a an artist, um, kind of visual artist and sculptor by training, who worked for years on an amazing project called the Trebus Project, where he was gathering the narratives. He set up, along with Age Concern Lancashire, some funding for a project to put five artists into residence in care settings in Lancashire and from Lancashire anyway so the care settings were all in Preston so this was a kind of nice chance to do something local for me Um, and it was an open application process so I had to apply um, alongside lots of other artists and I was lucky enough to be chosen to be one of those artists and then everything just sort of spiraled from there really. 
And what did that experience look like? Because I know you had some um, on-site experience. Um, can you tell us a wee bit about what the, what the actual project ended up looking like? Yeah, so it was a multidisciplinary project. So that meant there were five of us all from different disciplines. So there was me, there was another writer, there was a filmmaker, a painter and a photographer. And we had a sort of set up weekend where we got to visit a lot of um, different kinds of care settings, day centres, residential settings, um, sort of assisted living settings. And we effectively speed dated those places and decided where we wanted to be in residence. And the place that I chose was probably the darkest of those settings in some ways, because it was an end of life care facility. So that didn't mean that the people in there were were, were dying at that point, but um, it was a residential care setting and people only went in there when they were completely unable to live by themselves. It was called Lady Elsie Finney House. And I think over the course of nine months, I made about 20 visits to Lady Elsie Finney and I would get the train um, up to Preston and I would spend the day there just talking to people and then I would get the train back again and sometimes I would get off the train and burst into tears and sometimes I would get off the train and just go oh my god I have to tell everybody about what I've seen today and what's happened and this funny thing and this crazy thing and yeah it was an amazing experience and I'm so grateful for it. And was there you know when you entered into this project did you have kind of an awareness of what it would turn out like or were there things about it that really surprised you? I think like everybody else of my age at the time, I knew absolutely nothing about dementia and I knew absolutely nothing about care. And I think I was frightened. I was expecting it to be hard and I was expecting it to be scary. And actually what it was was incredibly funny and full of wonderful people. And it was hard sometimes because you are seeing people sort of coming towards the end of their life and and going through incredible processes of loss um but it was also that it wasn't scary anymore to a certain extent there wasn't really an awful lot of work about dementia when mm. this project was happening yeah. and I think that's something that's really really changed in the past 10 years you know it's it's a field that's really just opened up and changed and much more people kind of talk about their experiences with dementia and much more people are working in dementia and care settings and writing about it and making art about it and so I think now if I was starting out there would just be a lot more that I could look at but actually at that point there was basically nothing apart from what mm. David had done. Um, I'm wondering, you know, we're we're looking in this um, these conversations about how we creatively engage with dementia, and particularly how we write it. Um, and I want to get into some of the kind of big questions about that. Um, you did go on to to write a, a full collection based on your experiences um, in the care facility. And I wonder, Sarah, if you could talk a little bit about what your relationship creatively became with the people who you were visiting and getting to know there was really no direction at all and that was very deliberate on David's part because his argument was that when artists went into dementia care facilities what they were doing was art therapy and that actually um 
the media, the wider art world, uh, critics, people didn't pay attention to that work because it's, oh, here's some pasta collages that people with dementia have done. And that didn't change the conversation in any way. And his thinking was that if writers and artists made sort of a serious professional work about dementia, that was what was going to get attention. That was going to get more public Mm -hmm. conversation going. And so we were sort of told, go in there, um, figure it out as you go along. Hopefully you'll produce something at the end of it, but we have no idea what that might look like which was really scary, but also really liberating because how do you get that kind of commission? And um, it meant that I could sort of figure it out as I went along, but it was really impressed upon us that we were there to, to do our own practice and that obviously we would work collaboratively with people whilst we were there, but the aim was not for us to improve their outcomes or, um, you know, sort of support to them or help them to necessarily express their own artistic uh, impulses so what I would say is it was definitely a it it was a collaborative project because you're working with people Um, what that means in terms of the input that the people I was working with had is probably very different to what we normally mean by the word collaboration Um, So none of the people I worked with were in a position to give what we would call informed consent. None of those people would ethically be able to say, yes, I am participating in an artistic project. And so what effectively I was doing was having conversations and then finding a way to represent their experience, but also my experience. I think it's it's important that if you're doing work of this kind, the number one rule is it's not about you. It is about the people that you're working with. And that has to be at the forefront of your brain the whole time. But it's also important that you as the writer or artist are in the work as well, because that reminds people who are reading or looking at your work, that this is a mediated process, that this is a kind of artificial creation um and you are not offering unmediated access to what it's like to be a person with dementia you are not um putting those people on the page in a kind of raw unedited format that's just not true you know you are taking what you see and transforming it through an artistic creative process like any artist would do with any other sort of material um i love that term mediator i think that you know it it it's different from collaboration. Um, I, I think it, it speaks a lot of kind of um, being selective, of being very careful about how you represent someone's experience that's not your own. Um, and, and also, you know, I think it's come up in all of these conversations, this idea of respect and dignity. And I love that you said it's not about you. And yet it is also about you because you're an artist and we're not here to, you know, fix dementia or make a person's situation better or even to raise awareness. We're here to produce a piece of art. And did that feel like a tension for you that you were always holding in balance? Yeah, completely. I was asked quite a lot by the staff, what are you doing here? You know, why are you here? What are you for? Which was a totally valid question. And so in answering that, I kind of had to come up with an answer for myself. Um, 
And the answer I, I gave to the staff and the relatives that I talked to was that um, I'm here to tell what it's like. I'm here to sort of tell the wider world what it is like for you. And that was an answer that people responded really well to because they really felt totally unseen, totally undervalued, the staff especially. Family members as well are suffering. And at the time as well, it was still something that really people didn't talk about and the stigma was there. And it, it sort of, they felt totally as though they were going through this life-changing experience and, and the outside world just couldn't see it and didn't know what was happening. And so to some extent, it was... It probably ties into what we think of as the poetry of witness that you're kind of you're you are giving a, a public perspective to something that needs to be seen and isn't seen very well. Um, and you are to some extent helping you're a facilitator because you're helping other people tell their stories, people who aren't always capable of telling them. And by that word capable, I I mean, for the people with dementia, actually not capable because often not verbal or unable to kind of narrativize or frame things, um, but also to tell it in an in an artistic way is different to yeah. just saying this is what's happening to me. These are the three medical appointments I've had this week. You know, you are you're you're mediating it for them. That word again for an audience and yeah. um, an audience is is more likely to listen if it's in an artistic format, than they are to read a set of case reports. So yes, in an ideal world, people with dementia are telling their own stories. And that is happening more now for, for people who have had diagnoses and want to be public about it. And But I, I felt like my job was to sort of almost be like a reporter and say, look, I've been to this country and this is what it's like, and you need to know about this because actually these people need change, really, and nothing's going to change for the people who are in these settings, unless people know that it's even there. Um, I'm going to ask you in a wee second to read us a, a couple of poems from the Hard Word Books, which is the, the collection which came out of, of the project. And is, I think, a beautiful kind of overview of the funny bits and also the really difficult bits and the real range and depth of humanity that you encountered in this project. Um, I think I love what you just said about the kind of shaping aspect of what you're doing with the, the material that you were working with. It reminds me of things like my two favourite demented texts are Annie Arnaud's I Remain in Darkness, which is about her, her mother's journey with dementia, and then uh, the Dutch writer Erwin Mortier's The Stammered Songbook. And I think both of them do a, a similar kind of technique of here is the range and depth and um, extent of all of the experience but we're going to select certain parts and shape them into a way that might be easier for a reader who has no experience of dementia to kind of understand and get a little glimpse into what that world is like and um, I think you do that marvelously in this collection would you give us a couple of poems and maybe the context of where they came from Yes. Yeah, so the first poem I'm going to read is called Doreen. And um, one of the first things I got very obsessed with when I started on the residency were these things called care plans. And a care plan is a document that is created when you enter a care for setting. And it's meant to be a sort of record of you 
on paper and it's it's a sort of medical document but it's also a record of your likes dislikes do you like tea do you like coffee what kind of clothes do you like to wear what family interests you have and it's meant to be a kind of aid to the staff really so that they can kind of build up a quick bond and um, work with residents to help them feel happy and do the things that they want to do and and talk about the things that they might want to talk about during the day. But what I realised was that um, in the case of Elsie Finney, these documents hadn't really been regularly updated. And so the picture that you had of people on paper was almost like a fossil because it really bore no relation sometimes to the person that you would see in front of you in the kitchen, uh, pouring a cup of tea over someone's head. You know, it was uh, the disconnect um, sort of fascinated me, but also the idea that you would try and capture a whole person on two sides of A4 and that the woman Doreen that um, I wrote this poem about, there was a particular disconnect between the what was written on her care plan and the extremely angry, quite rightfully, quite unpleasant um, old lady who sat in a chair shouting and swearing at people for most of the day. Um, I love Doreen, you know, she was in an awful situation. She knew it and she didn't like it. So this poem is called Doreen. Doreen is a widow. Doreen has one son and a daughter-in-law in the Preston area. Doreen loves flowers. Doreen loved horrible, 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 horrible gardening and was always happy when spending time in the garden. Doreen likes, I didn't come back, you came back, collie dogs you and that woman, and looking at pictures of them. Doreen can be quite unhappy when assisted with personal care. Doreen likes going into the garden. Doreen sometimes likes a shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up, sing along. Doreen, don't come any nearer, you're past it now, likes her own space and to be left alone sometimes. Doreen doesn't like to be fussed. Doreen is not tactile. Doreen used to make all her own clothes, mucky, mucky, mucky people. As she was so petite, she was never able to find things to fit. Doreen has a good sense of humour. Doreen can be a bit rude sometimes. Be good, because we have no more. But staff help her with this. Doreen's life achievement, awaiting information. Doreen does not, that's horrible, disgusting, no, I don't like that, mobilise. Um, I wonder if you got another one for us? Yeah, so the next poem I'm going to read is called The Hard Words, and it's the title poem uh, from the collection. And the title itself actually comes from an Anne Carson quote. You talked before about the the kind of dementia texts, um, Annie Anno and... Um, Louis Mortier, Stammer Sombuk, that when I was looking around, those kinds of texts weren't really there. But what I did do was sort of look at other poetry that mm. was kind of fragmented. So I was I was hunting for help with form rather than necessarily dementia content. And there was a particular line in an Anne Carson poem, which 
was it was always the hard word box they wanted, which seemed to me to encapsulate that idea that when we talk to people with dementia or we kind of ask them to interact with us, we kind of want them to sort of deliver some kind of profound truth or something about life that we didn't understand before, that somehow they're in this privileged position and that when they speak in in these sort of fragmented sentences, there's some deep poetic artistic truth that is coming out instead of actually just someone who really is trying to tell you they need the toilet or they want to have their lunch now. Yeah. And so the title that I chose for this was really a sort of riposte to that idea that people who have dementia are speaking poetry all the time. And this kind of pressure that we put on people sometimes to provide us with artistic truth or artistic material mm. out of that experience in their lives. The hard words. Look, let's be clear. Don't imagine there is anybody here who enjoys dribbling poetry. If you think we're holding stars on our tongues, that's your eyes want testing. If you hear music when we grunt, you haven't understood exactly what it is we needed to say. You might enjoy the ruins of our grammar, the way we chew up our nouns to song. It's not your hand that's getting thinner on the blanket. Please don't ask us to speak the hard words all at once. Sarah, in in that poem, I think it's it's particularly clear that you know you're you're not there to manipulate the words or the language or the experiences of the people that you're working with, and yet there is this sense of, for me anyway, and I know I've talked to you about this before, that there is something kind of creative and inspiring about working with some of the constraints that are thrown up by dementia, the language patterns, the loss of words often yeah I mean you can't deny it's absolutely fascinating sometimes how the language patterns change um of people with dementia and the the acts of interpretation that you have to perform to attempt to try and understand and often fail still even to understand um when you're talking to people with dementia and I I I loved that I love sitting down with people whose language was going and um trying to put patterns onto what it was they were saying trying to see if I could find patterns for better or worse you know it was like um I was trying to learn a language I was playing with language with them um and repetition you know as a poet repetition is so important and so interesting and useful in so many different ways and you you use you repeat sounds in poems to create effect. That's how you make your music. And so to work with people who repeated themselves so much and to, to look at what people were repeating and why were they repeating it and to look for the, the levels of metaphor in that because he was repeating an experience again and again about having um, gone through a certain experience when they were at school actually were they really trying to tell you about that experience at school or were they using it to tell you about something that was happening now to them actually and it was that the feeling of having been bullied at school or run into trouble with a bunch of other kids they were using to translate into the feeling of threat that they were feeling now um or you know also looking for the um 
getting stuck in the traps of people telling you stuff that is completely untrue. You know, there was one guy, Hugh, uh, George, who loved to tell me uh, about his stories of working down a racetrack. And then one time he started telling me he had a gun. Now, did he ever have a gun or did he just see it on his tenders? You know, that you don't know as well that you're in this position of instability where you can't trust anything that you hear. And also, I remember David saying to me, most of the time, these things are true and people don't trust it. And that that really helped me as a fiction writer, the suspension of disbelief. When you're working with somebody who has dementia, you quite often just have to completely suspend your disbelief and enter into that. Oh, so you had a gun and this is what happened. And that's always when I'm writing fiction, I'm trying to get to that place with my, my narrative as well, where I completely believe the story that I'm telling. So I, I find that really useful. And um, I know you invoked the sacred name of Anne Carson there a second ago um, my favourite person that I rhyme with on this planet um, and I'm wondering you know when you came to this work as you said you know it was quite a, a while ago and there wasn't the body of work that there is now were there any other texts or pieces of research that helped to inform your work um, Reasons Why I Jump by David Mitchell Mm -hmm. which yeah. is uh, a book that he produced working with um, a young man who had autism, uh, helping to explain, it was sort of written in the voice of the person who has autism and Mitchell had kind of written this up as a kind of mediated text to to explore. And I remember that being quite a useful way in. Yeah. Um, and I did also read, you know, I did dig around for a couple of sort of scientific texts as well. So there was a book that is called Pieces of Light, I think. Yeah, I've read that one. Um, and I did also read Sally Magnuson's memoir of um, her father as well. But they were not, they didn't help necessarily in the construction of the form of what I was doing. They provided context, but they didn't provide artistic inspiration in, in the same way that I think if I was doing this project now, there would be more for me to draw on. Yeah, I, I definitely, for me, when I read um, the Stammered Songbook, I'm probably putting it up against uh, Florian Zeller's The Father, like the actual, the original play text of it, something opened up, like that, you know, dementia, writing about dementia could be something of real artistic worth, as well as, as, as being a, a valuable, respectful kind of document of an experience too, because um, I think both of those are absolutely beautiful pieces of writing. Um, Sarah, just to finish up, I wonder um, if you could talk a little bit about how this experience impacted your own work, you know, your, your work as a poet, as an editor, and even your own sense of yourself. It's been a wee while now, so you've had a chance to kind of look back. Um, were you changed by this experience in any way? Yeah, I mean, it was both career changing in terms of my writing and life changing in terms of my own sense of self, I think. Um, career wise, it it led to lots of other interesting work as well, working with older people. So working with the Holocaust Memorial Day Trust, working with a World War II veteran. I was never that interested in writing about myself, which in poetry is a bit of a struggle because people are always sort of encouraging you to, to speak your truth and speak your experiences and to, to write out of that sort of poetic ego. And I was never very comfortable doing that. 
And I used to struggle a bit with, okay, what's my thing? What's my, what is my poetic subject? Why is it not me? And I mainly used to write about sort of historical figures or kind of characters on the margins. And what this project and the work that I went on to do after made me realize was that my subject is other people that actually what I now kind of consider myself to be in writing is the equivalent of a portrait painter. So what I'm interested in is portraiture and how we um, mark and record people and their lives and the things that have happened to Sarah, thank you so much for sharing some of your experiences and your thoughts with us this afternoon. It's been lovely to catch up with you. I know, it's been so nice. Thank you very much for asking. some conclusions from these wonderful conversations I think it's important that we as writers and readers of others experiences acknowledge that we're both privileged and responsible simply because we retain a level of distance from the experience we've chosen to engage with we are only ever outsiders and visitors we can at any moment put the pen down close the novel leave the theatre and walk away what the writer does with this privilege is up to her Some will consciously or subconsciously ride roughshod over the experiences they've been entrusted with. But I believe that when approaching another story, there's a duty incumbent upon any writer who takes their calling seriously. They must speak boldly, truthfully and with the other's well-being in mind. The methods which I've explored in these conversations, careful research, lived experience and collaboration, not only offer a robust framework for ethically writing dementia, but might also inform any attempt to write an experience which the writer doesn't personally know. Though well-intentioned, we will probably make mistakes in our portrayal of dementia, because we cannot separate ourselves from the telling, because the stories we're crafting sit beyond ourselves, and because, at a base and essential level, our words can only convey so much. Dementia is an illness which is all too familiar with the failure and limitations of language. I wrote about this in a 2016 postcard story, and I'll share it with you now. I thought the first things to be forgotten would be the hard facts. The Battle of Hastings, the freezing point of water, how many days I might expect to encounter in February during a leap year. This was not true. The first things which slipped free were feelings. The ill-defined anxiety of whether a room was there for the entering or the leaving. Who I loved and how much this love could be lent upon when a name could not be found to pair with it. How I'd arrived at this place with the curtains drawn and it not yet gone through. There was not even a way to say that I had forgotten these things. Only a jumble of words too long or too short for the job and a clenching of fists when the words would not come. Even then, the hard facts remained and I could say, 
1066 and 0 degrees and 28 days clear, 29 in each leap year. Which was a ludicrous way to let you know I was lost. Like using a fork to spoon soup. I've also experienced firsthand a paucity of depths and resonance when it comes to writing about dementia. Last summer, I wrote dance lessons, a play about a man and his wife coming to terms with how dementia has impacted his language capability. Words were not enough to express the couple's frustration and loss. In the end, I used music and choreography to create space so my characters' experiences could remain deliberately ambiguous and free to resonate with audience members on different levels. Presenting their story in words alone had felt like an oversimplification, a crass solidification of something indefinite and in constant flux. When she writes, Sometimes I leave my sentences unfinished. Annie Arnault also acknowledges the limits of written language in expressing her mother's experience with dementia, while the Dutch poet Erwin Mortier uses the idea of an echo as metaphor for the deliberate silences and evasions which often speak loudest in another's experience. People have their own echo. I find it hard to explain. I can sometimes hear the white noise of their existence. Reading Mortier's words helped me understand why I usually find poetry about dementia more powerful and believable than prose. In the white space afforded by a poem, there's room for another's experience to take on its own form and meaning outside the definitions a writer's words will impose upon it. Space must be left for the things which words cannot say. And so I conclude with this powerful passage lifted from Mortier's stammered songbook, a reminder that writing dementia isn't about pinning down the entirety of another's experience with perfect accuracy. It's about respect and understanding our responsibility as writers and serving the story well. It involves being constantly mindful of our privilege as outsiders, yet opening ourselves up to transformation it is, as Mortier so eloquently puts it, remembering that love is attention, that they are two words for the same thing, that it isn't necessary to try to clear up every typo and obscure passage that we come across when we read the other person attentively, that a human being is difficult poetry, which you must be able to listen to without always demanding clarification. And that the best thing that can happen to us is the absolution that a loved one grants us for the unjustifiable fact that we exist and drag along with us a self that has been marked and shaped by so many others. You've been listening to Writer Presents. This edition of Writer Presents was written and presented by Jan Carson 
and featured a conversation with Sarah Hesketh. Writer Presents is produced with the support of the Arts Council and Corla Allian. For more from Radio Molly, visit radio.molly.ie. Radio Molly.